Well, good morning. It is so good to be here this morning. Ken, and thank you. Just great worship. Really was challenged and encouraged um, by that. What a, what a wonderful thing. You know, I got to tell you guys, we are looking forward to Easter, and Easter really is a, a season that uh, encapsulates and summarizes our purpose as believers. And I just did, I want to just tell you guys this. Um, this week I had a great experience. We sat down with uh, staff uh, some time ago and just said, hey, uh, what do you think of our church vision? What are the things about our church vision statement that you love? And if there was anything that you could tweak or modify, what, what would you tweak or modify? So that was one of our questions. Uh, the, the other question was, um, you know, churches all have core values, things that they say that are important to them. And I said, I want you to forget what's on the website. I just want you to think about our church family. What are our real core values? What, what are the things that when you look around, you say, this is what Foothills is committed to? And then a follow-up question is, is there any area in that where we can grow? Is there something that we could demonstrate commitment to? Uh, is there a way we could grow? So this is what was kind of cool is I had a conversation with staff. And then in our last elder meeting, I went to the elder meeting. I said the exact same thing. What do you love about our mission statement? Is there anything that you would tweak or modify? What are our current core values? And is there any way that we could grow? You want to know what the weirdest thing was? In both separate groups, they all, the elders and our staff, all said the exact same thing, almost with the same words. Not the exact same words, but almost with the same words. And I am just really excited for what God is doing in our leadership, the things that we're committed to, and what we're talking about in the sense of, of Easter. Man, this is about eternal life. Our, our life as a church is about the worship of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be considering extravagant worship as it is expressed through the life of a lady named Mary and how she saw Jesus, who she realized um, him to be, and, and the way that her life was transformed as a church. We're not just trying to make people better people. We're not just trying to show up and kind of have fun and be nice. We want to be transformed by the person of Christ. And that's what this season is about. And so our plan today, we're going to consider extravagant worship. And we're going to cover a little bit the, the historical, the, the whole idea, the whole thing that was happening on Palm Sunday. But our focus this morning is going to be something that happens on Saturday night before Palm Sunday. But we're going to talk about how that feeds into Palm Sunday on, uh, on Friday I am so excited about Friday because um, Jason uh, sent me a question some time ago about Genesis 3.15 and the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman and what is all this stuff. And it was just such a deeply well-thought question. And as I thought about it, that's what we're going to do on, on Good Friday is we're going to look at, okay, who was the seed of Satan that bruised? And we'll get, we're going to get to meet him today, but uh, we'll talk more about him later uh, on, on Friday. But uh, King's Cross, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share part of that. And King's Cross is uh, Chris Pabletti from King's Cross going to hit the other part. And by the way, it's going to be so good. I'm going to talk about the evil of humanity and the death of Christ. And uh, P, um, uh, Chris is going to talk about God's work in the death of Christ. That was God's plan. 
And we're going to see how those two things fit together. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's life. And the Apostle Paul was a person who hated, tormented Christians. And at the end of his life, and at the end of the book of Acts, he's actually sharing how the resurrection of Christ changed his life. And so we're going to look at that on Easter. And so I am so excited about what's coming up this season. And so if you have your Bibles, um, open them up to John chapter 12. We're going to cover a little bit of stuff, and then we're going to be digging into those. John chapter 12, and I'm going to start you reading in verse 9. You'll notice our passage is 1 through 8, but we're going to start reading this morning in verse 9. And I uh, just want to look at this section and just consider the extravagant worship of Mary. Now, the word extravagant, it's interesting because when you look it up and you look for synonyms, it says overgenerous, excessive. And you want to know what one of the words is? Wasteful. That's going to come back into our story as we see Mary extravagantly working, uh, worshiping Jesus, and we see Judas labeling it as wasteful. And so um, that's just like, it's an amazing thing. You think about extravagant, it's perfect. But Jesus emphasizes the righteousness of her commitment to worship. And this is a challenge. It's something that should inspire you and me. This is a story, amazingly, in this story, there's this thing that happens in the heart of a lady toward Jesus that is so amazing and so inspiring and that everybody should have looked at that and thought, how could I be more like that? And yet you see Judas and the disciples uh, criticizing her, giving her pressure, condemning her. What should have inspired them, they condemn. And uh, we got to make sure that as we live our Christian lives, that we're inspired by the right things, that we condemn the right things, that, that we actually understand what we're looking at in life. In fact, um, this is how Jesus ex, uh, describes, and this is what Jesus says about her wastefulness. Is he just says this in Matthew 26, 13. He says, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. Jesus looks at this thing that was criticized by Judas and the, and the disciples, and Jesus says, this is so good, this story's going to go everywhere the gospel is preached. So Jesus doesn't look at it and go, yeah, you guys have a good point, it was wasteful. Jesus is like, no, this is how everybody should live. This is the way everyone should think. And so as we set the stage, um, I want to just briefly consider kind of what happens in the triumphal entry of Jesus coming. And so we're going to cover that a little bit, and I try to do this actually every Palm Sunday. So um, at Foothills, we don't just do the same thing every time, but also there are certain times that we need to not forget what's happening on these really key important days. And so let me jump into a, first, a few things. Let's start, if you have your Bibles, go to um, John chapter 12, verse 9. We're going to read some shocking things. It says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only account of him, but also but to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Last year, we talked about Lazarus and how the raising of Lazarus was a, a key reason that Palm Sunday was so popular and that Jesus was the focus of it. 
And so just like a brief summary of the ministry of Jesus, um, Jesus ministered for about three and a half years. And uh, so he lives his life. He's born. He lives a perfect life. He starts his ministry. And for about four months, you got John the Baptist is talking about who Jesus is. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everybody knows, if you read Scripture and, and you see these things, while everybody missed it, the announcement of Jesus starts with the fact that he is coming to die as a sacrifice for mankind. And that's because if we want eternal life, that has to happen. And so you got John the Baptist, you have Jesus baptized, and in his baptism, there's the testimony of God the Father and the Holy Spirit about who Jesus is. You actually see the Trinity. Uh, God doesn't turn into the Holy Spirit and then turn into Jesus, and, and God's not shape-shifting. You see all three persons of the Trinity in the same place at Jesus' baptism. And then we have the temptation where, where Satan tries to derail what God's doing right at the start, and we see Satan attacking and working throughout his ministry. And then for two years, Jesus is traveling in public and for five months, he's in Judea. And in 18, for 18 months, he's in Galilee. And then for six months, he takes a step back. He focuses in with his disciples, and he's discipling them. It's more of a private ministry. And one of the things that Jesus starts doing in that six-month period, and there have been references to the fact that Jesus is coming to die, but what happens is in that period of time, he gets serious, and he focuses, and he communicates to his disciples what you are expecting to happen, that I'm going to come here and rule and take everything over. That's not going to happen. I'm actually going to be turned over, crucified, and killed by Gentiles. And, you know, we know Peter, right? One of the things Peter says, no, that, may that never happen. So Satan doesn't want Jesus to redeem mankind and speaks through Peter to tell Jesus, don't go to the cross, which is interesting because then later you got, who's betraying Jesus? Judas. And we'll talk about that on Friday. I'm trying not to get into that today because this is so good. But um, So he has this private uh, ministry to his disciples. And by the way, they are perplexed. They don't understand it. And everybody talks about what idiots the disciples are for not understanding. Right? You ever hear that? But when we read the Bible we find out that they didn't understand, not because they were idiots, but because supernaturally, God stopped them from understanding the significance of the things that Jesus was saying. It was veiled from their mind. It was hidden from them. And God had a supernatural purpose in them hearing in them not understanding and the drama and the difficulty that they were going to go through because of that. And then when all of a sudden the lights went on, their life was transformed. So we'll maybe touch on that a little bit. And so then for six more months, he has this mixed focus where he's going around and doing things. And the, one of the last major miracles that Jesus does is he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that's, that, is a, that is a miracle that is timed perfectly and that Jesus allows to happen. Like Mary and Martha, they say, hey, Lazarus is sick, and come help my brother. And Jesus waits. 
and he waits because he has the intention of God receiving glory. And so Lazarus dies, and Jesus lets that happen on purpose. And so then when Jesus finally shows up, and we will read this because we're going to meet Mary and Martha, and they are brokenhearted. How could you let our brother die? You could have stopped this. And so that's where they're at. This amazing miracle happens where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And nobody can deny it. And everybody wants to come see Lazarus. And many people are believing in Jesus because Lazarus is raised from the dead. But the most theologically significant things that are said in that whole interaction come from Jesus and Martha and Mary. And so we'll look at that. And then Jesus spends his last week on earth 47 days. So seven days where all this stuff happens. And then another 40 days of Jesus after he's raised from the dead, walking around and talking to people, having conversations, teaching, commissioning his disciples. The resurrection of Jesus is undeniable historically because he walked around for 40 days. And so that's kind of the overarching thing about Jesus's ministry. And then let's just talk about what happens this week. On Sunday, Jesus enters. Our story happens on Saturday night before this Sunday. And when he enters, man, we have purple up here on the, on the cross because everybody is seeing and calling Jesus the King, the Messiah. And then Jesus demonstrates his power because he walks into town and on Monday, he cleanses the temple. All these leaders want to kill Jesus and he kicks them out of the temple. He's like, this is my house and you guys get out. I mean, this powerful man. And it becomes very obvious that Jesus went to the cross because that's what he decided to do, not because that's what somebody did to him. And then he's teaching, he has interactions with leaders. Wednesday, Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Uh, one of the things that's, Judas is looking for a time to betray Jesus. And when the time's right, you know, Jesus stays in Bethany. I'll show you where that is, and I'll, I'll make a comment about why the distance of that. But Jesus acts, Judas is trying to find a time to betray Jesus, and Jesus goes, okay, Judas, you're up, go do it. That, that, whose timing is it? Jesus' timing. And then there's the Passover, the last summer, supper, Gethsemane. You think about what Satan's trying to do in Peter's life. And, he's, and you, know, you think about the story of Job, right? Where Satan goes and says to God, Job loves you. But that's only because you take care of him. Let me hurt him. Let me traumatize him. And then he'll curse you. And we find out that God says, okay, but is in complete control of Satan's interactions with Job. And then you, you get this same thing here. You know, Satan's trying to speak through Peter and get him to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And then Satan has all the stuff that he's doing within the disciples, the way they're fighting with each other. Satan is using Judas as his favorite tool. And uh, in all of that, then uh, Satan tells Jesus, I want to sift Peter like wheat. Like, let me at Peter. 
And Jesus says to him, and I hope this was an encouragement too, he just says, hey, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but dude, I'm praying for you. <laughs> I, I kind of I like that. If Jesus could look at me and say, I'm praying for you, like when you guys pray for me, I actually feel pretty good about that. But I just got to say, I'd feel a lot better if uh, Jesus said he was praying for me. Uh, but you want to know what the really cool thing is? This is a side note. The Bible actually says that Jesus prays for you and me. In John 17, there's an example of Jesus praying for you and me. And the Bible also tells us that the Holy Spirit prays for us. So, hey, prayer requests are awesome. Uh, one of the things that came up in our this things about what our core values of Foothills Church, prayer was one of those. That prayer happens here. That prayer is powerful. And uh, so that, that's a core value. But it's, it's kind of cool that Jesus and God himself the Holy Spirit are praying for us. And so uh, anyway, that was uh, the, some of the Friday stuff. But then on Sunday, Jesus rises from the dead, and we'll save all that for Sunday. So this is kind of the context of what's happening. And now I want to read through the end of John chapter 12. Um, not the whole thing, but a middle section, and then we're going to jump into the beginning. So let's just start looking at this. It says this in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This undeniable miracle. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on, a, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Okay, like... This is what's going on with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. There's this huge contrast between everybody and Mary, who we're going to be looking at. Because Mary wasn't like that, but these religious leaders, have you ever heard, just thought to yourself, you know, if I got this friend that's really smart, they're really scientific, and if only I could learn enough, if only I was smart enough to convince them, well, there's these scientists, and they see so much evidence that points them away from Christ. And, you know, that's, it's just so hard. <laughs> Did you guys know that no amount of logic and no amount of convincing and no amount of proof ever saved anyone? Um, people don't believe because they're hard-hearted and they suppress the truth about God. And this example is so clear that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and the Pharisees are going, everybody's seeing this and believing, which everybody should. And they say, so let's kill Jesus, but let's kill Lazarus too. Like that is the hard-hearted sinfulness of man. And by the way, the Bible talks about that all over. Romans 1, people suppress the truth they already know. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, chapter 1 verse 22, Jews demands, uh, demand signs and G Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And that unless God opens the heart, no heart can see. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is blinding the minds of the unbelievers that they won't see the gospel. Now think about that as we approach this Easter season. We think about inviting our friends. It's not about you saying the perfect thing and the right thing. It's about you being a channel of invitation and an example and reaching out and praying that God will work in the heart of whoever you invite and whoever you share with. And if people come or don't come or you share the gospel and they get saved or they don't get saved, that's actually not up to you. 
That's up to God. It is our job to faithfully do the things that he tells us to do. This contrast between Mary and other people. Man, there's so many good things in this story. Verse 12, the next day the large crowd had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Um, Large crowds. Did you know that 8 out of 10 Americans uh, celebrate Easter? Uh, 22% celebrated Easter in person in 2021. That was kind of like with all the COVID stuff. 22% of Americans said, I'm going to church anyway. Did you know 37% of Americans are planning to come to church this Easter? Um, Easter is statistically the highest day for attendance in churches. Um, Now, we do happen to live in California. Now, when you're going, how many people are Christians in the United States? There's a group of 18 states that are in the bottom rung, under 40%. And wouldn't you know where California is in that group? You know, this is no surprise to us, but I just want you to know there is no better state that you could live in. Like, I don't want to live in the state where everybody goes to church and everybody calls themselves a Christian. There's no better place to live than in a place with lost people who don't know the Lord. Man, God put us here to make a difference. Now, I have friends that don't want to live in Orange County. They want to live in the inner city where people have needs. And I keep telling them, rich people need Jesus too. People who feel comfortable also need the gospel. In fact, it's easier to share the gospel in the inner city than it is in our town. So we need to be here. And all the people fleeing California, I just say if you're pursuing your own best interests and your own well-being, sure, go to a place where it's cheaper. But if you care about God and you care about ministry, stay here. That's my opinion. I'm not trying to criticize anybody who wants to leave. Cannon's talked about wanting to not live in California. So that part was for you. So we need to make sure that we're inviting strangers, neighbors, and friends. All of that out of there was a good big crowd going to Palm Sunday. Okay, let's look at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees. I have little palm trees on my shirt. And uh, we got palm trees out there. That is actually a significant thing. Did you know John is the only one that records palm trees? And uh, what it means is it means that they recognized who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah. And so they're worshiping him. They're, they're doing these palm trees, palm branches, waving them. They're saying, Hosanna, which means save us. They, they seize the Messiah coming to save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, he sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey on a colt. So here's the cool thing. Jesus comes into town. All the Jews recognize he's the Messiah and he's the king. But the way he does it, the Romans don't know. So they don't go say, hey, this is a rebellion. They're trying to overthrow us. I mean, everything Jesus did in this entire thing is so perfect. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Jesus was God. So... It all happened perfectly. Then it says in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. And that's because it was supernaturally hidden from them, Luke tells us. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done by him. And the crowds that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb raised and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him is that they heard that he had done this sign. And the Pharisees look at this and they just say, 
to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world's gone after them, after him. So crazy. The disciples think this is our day. Jesus is coming in. He's taking over. Look at the crowds. Look how, look at, look at all this. Man, everybody's with us. The, the Pharisees, they can do nothing. They want to put Jesus to death, but Jesus just walks into the temple and kicks them out of the temple. Jesus, we are so powerful. Jesus, we're taking over. That's how the disciples feel. And uh, the Pharisees are thinking, oh my goodness, all is lost. Everything we're working toward, nothing is happening the way they want. And they don't realize that by Friday, they're going to get exactly what they want. And then on Sunday, they're going to realize that that wasn't exactly what they wanted. They didn't accomplish what they thought they were going to accomplish. You know, it's amazing that when we see this, but that's the thing I want to go back, and I want to look at what happens right before this. What happens on Saturday night right before all these things happen? Because we're going to find out that there's another person who seems to get it. She's in the quiet of a personal home. There's a crowd of people there that love Jesus. They're celebrating his miracles. And there's somebody that, while everybody else has the wrong idea of what's going on, there is somebody who actually sees what's going on who knows what's coming, and who is thinking about Jesus the way every person should think about Jesus, who's making these expressions of worship toward Jesus that we should all make. And um, it's Mary. And I think probably Martha too, but Mary gets the highlight here. And so we're going to see three things. First, the extravagant worship of Mary. We're going to see Judas's satanic disruption Satan's always trying to disrupt, and Judas is his tool. And then we're going to see Jesus' powerful and personal protection of Mary, that Jesus has purpose, and he is going to protect her. And, and, and while this faithful person is doing what God wants and everybody else is criticizing and coming down on her, Jesus is going to say no. He's going to protect her, he's going to honor it, and he's going to hold that up as an example everywhere the gospel is preached. So let's jump into here, John 12, verse 1. And let's look at this extravagant worship of Mary. This is what it says, um, worship from Mary. John 12, 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, let me tell you a little about, bit about Bethany. So Bethany is a couple miles from uh, the temple. And one of the things that's interesting here is Jesus is staying in Bethany. He's there with his disciples. So if Judas wants to go betray Jesus uh, before Jesus has decided it's time for him to betray him, he can't do it because it's too far of a walk for somebody on the Sabbath. So Judas can't get ahead of schedule. Jesus plans this out perfectly. And that, by the way, is where Lazarus and Mary and um, Martha and also Simon the leper. That's where they live. So when we look at this, let's just consider some background on Mary. So Mary is the sister of Martha. I just want to say this. There's tons of Marys in the Bible. Um, you got Mary, the mother of Jesus. You got Mary Magdalene. You got Mary from Bethany, this Mary. You got Mary, the mother of Salome and John. You, you have all these Marys. And sometimes in some of the stories, the resurrection accounts, they're talking about Mary. And sometimes they list more than one of the Marys. And sometimes they just say women. But the truth is, it's hard sometimes to figure out who's doing what because it seems like almost everybody's name was Mary. Uh, you know, another name, Simon, 
You got Simon the leper, but you also have Simon the Pharisee in another similar story. You want to know what other names were like all over the place? Simon. So everybody's name is Simon and everybody's name is Mary. And that makes some of these things challenging. But when we meet Mary and Martha for the first time, now think about Luke chapter 10, verse 38. So Jesus is on a journey, and there's this little story that's told about Mary and Martha, Martha serving, and Mary's worshiping. This is what it says now. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. This is Luke 10, 38. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So Mary's a disciple. She cares about what Jesus says. Her priority is not the events going on. But I want to hear, I want to hear from Jesus. And so she sits at his feet. She loves Jesus and she wants to hear. And in a culture, you know, it's so crazy. Uh, like, uh, I think it's the gospel of Thomas, uh, where Peter talks about how all women are satanic. And, and, and how women are bad. And, and then, and actually, so Jesus says, yeah, well, I'm going to help out Mary because, yeah, women are out. And uh, so I'm going to help out Mary. I'm going to make her not a woman. So like she kind of becomes this androgynous person. And there are people who want to add that to Scripture. It's like, no, that's actually not from the Bible. That is not anything that the Bible ever says, anything like that. And so you have all these false books that people claim for religious authority that have so many atrocious things in them. And uh, we find out that that is certainly not the case. Jesus says, Mary, come listen, come sit at my feet. And then it goes on and it says in verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving and she went to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? tell her to help me. <laughs> we can all relate to Martha, right? She's doing the work. She, she, sometimes I think people are hard on Martha. You know, Jesus talks about servant-hearted leadership, right? And if you're going to have a gathering of people, somebody has to cook food, somebody has to set things up, somebody has to do things, and that's what Mary's doing. So there's nothing wrong with what Mary's doing, but she's so anxious, but she's looking around it saying, tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You know, um, we need to work hard and people do need to serve. And um, sometimes we serve by doing things and sometimes we just need to prioritize by saying, I'm gonna trust God to deal with these things. You know, that's Psalm 127, right? Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards a city, the watchman stays awake in vain, but God gives to his beloved in his sleep. And I would just go out there and say, if Martha would have sat down at Jesus' feet, the work still would have got done. But I will say this, there was nothing wrong with Martha serving, but Martha actually missed out on the significance of sitting at Jesus' feet. You know, I think about that for church on Sunday morning. I think about that for events. I've sat with ministry leaders when we're trying to pull off an event. And, and I've had ministry leaders at various places in various years that when we're talking about teaching the Bible, hey, we're going to get together. We're going to study God's word. We want to hear what God says. Ah, you know, it's like we got enough of that. What we really need to do is we need to share. We need to talk about how we all feel. 
And, and there are so many people that want to get together and share their good ideas and have some good social activities and events. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But those things are not what transform life. It is God's word. It is God's teaching that transforms life. As a youth pastor, we did all kinds of, in my younger years as a youth pastor, we did all kinds of fun things. We went water skiing. Uh, we did, we played all kinds of various games. But I'm going to tell you this. We never once gathered without opening up God's word, talking about the priority of it, how it impacted them. And yes, we had fun. But we talked about last week how 66% of youth never go back to church when they graduate. And it's because so many people focus on let's entertain and they leave God's word out. And God just looks at the situation. Mary understood. She knew what the priority was. And she wasn't interested in people just socializing and eating and having a good time talking about things. She wanted to hear from God. And that's actually something that we need to learn to value. All of the modern church movements de-emphasize Scripture. In fact, I went to a great seminary. But you know what somebody told me in one of my seminary preaching classes? They said, don't read long passages of Scripture in church. And I'm just thinking to myself, you know, you can make a lot of mistakes, but I don't think that's one of them. And so um, in this banquet... Um, we're going to see here, it says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. And this is a gathering of people. Um, there's probably seven, there's about 17 people referred to in these passages that are at this gathering. So this is a large gathering of people, and there may have been more there, but there are 17, there are 17 people that are, that are named. Simon, it says it's his house, does name him as being there in the other gospels, but probably he was there, Simon the leper. And so we see that, that Jesus valued that. I want you to turn now to John chapter 11, verse 20. And we're going to set the, we're going to talk a little bit more about who Mary is. And I want to just say John eleven five. it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary and Lazarus. You know, that is just such a bizarre phrase to me. You know, throughout, uh, Jesus is the most loving person ever on earth. Jesus loved everybody. So what do you think the significance is? The God of the universe who loves everyone. When, when people come to him and they say, what do I have to do to be saved? And then he tells them, and then they go, uh, no thanks, and they walk away. It says Jesus was sad because he loved that person. When, when, when we gather, when Jesus gathered the crowds, his biggest crowds, he preached the hardest messages to. And so whenever Jesus had a huge crowd, he preached a sermon, and then most people left. In fact, there's thousands of people, and they leave when Jesus preaches. And then Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, um, hey, everybody's gone. <laughs> you want to go too? <laughs> you know what the Bible says? At the end times, people are going to find teachers to tickle their ears. Sometimes we look at churches, and they're huge, and we think, oh, man, they're doing it right. How can we follow their example? when actually maybe we should say, let's not follow their example. Hey, the goal's not to be small. 
But how many people are somewhere is not a measure of whether or not you're honoring the Lord. Because if we, if we measured it that way, then Jesus was a failure. We know that's not true. So let's look at this whole raising of Lazarus and what it tells us about Jesus and Martha and Mary. Look at verse 20. Um, so uh, Jesus has delayed. Lazarus has died. He's in the tr- tomb. And Mary and Martha are not happy. They are hurt. They are crushed. They are heartbroken. They have faced this tragedy of their brother dying. So when Mary and Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. So that's Martha, but Mary remained seated in the house. This Mary who loves Jesus, who sat at his feet, when she faces a personal tragedy, she just sits in her house. Martha goes out to meet him, and Martha says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Um, she's seen Jesus raise people, she's seen Jesus heal people. And she's just saying, man, you, you delayed, and now my brother's gone. Man, that's painful. You ever lose somebody that you love? And just the intense pain of that, that's how they're feeling. And uh, then Jesus says to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And here's one of the things that you realize, the deep theology that Mary and Martha have. Like these two ladies, they see and understand things that other people don't see and understand. And she says this, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she knows that her brother knows the Lord and that there is a coming uh, resurrection. And I'm not going to dig into this. But she knows that he's in the presence of the Lord, but that he hasn't received his resurrection body. The Bible tells us that's going to happen later. So her brother's dead. She knows he's with the Lord, but she knows he hasn't been resurrected yet. But on the last day, he's going to be resurrected. Hey, that'll be a good topic for a sermon sometime, how all those things work out. And then Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Like, this is one of the significant things about Jesus' ministry. It's why he lets Lazarus die. It's for this. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And did you know that that's what we're about as Christians? We are about eternity. We're not about trying to make somebody feel good in the moment and then spend forever in hell separated from God. We, we are here to pursue eternal salvation in your family, with your kids. The most significant thing that you do, your most significant ministry, is are you making sure that from the time your kids can talk, that you are laying a foundation not about being good and not about homework and school, but are you targeting and communicating and praying for and putting them environments where they can understand that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You know, so often we, we miss what God's put us here on earth for. And I mentioned that about kids because often in the church, we don't know why we're here. And we don't know why we're here in church because we don't actually even know why we're here for our own family. But if we know what we're doing in our family, we will also do that in the church. And, And what's wrong with many churches is they miss this. 
But Martha didn't miss it, Mary didn't miss it, and Jesus certainly didn't miss it. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he says to her, do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord. And this is the key thing. She knows who Jesus is, and she knows what he can accomplish. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. That's the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, the Son of God. He is God. When Jesus called himself the Son of God, the Pharisees wanted to kill him because he was making himself out to be God. And then she says, who is coming into the world. She realizes he did not begin to exist at his birth, but that he existed beforehand and took on human humanity. So Martha knows this. And guess who else knows this? Mary. And when she said this, she went and she called her sister, verse 28, in private, saying, the teacher is here, he's calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but she was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when, when the Jews who were with her in the house were consoling her, saw Mary get up and run quickly to go out. She's brokenhearted, she's crushed. But the moment that Martha says, hey Mary, um, Jesus is calling you. She pops up and goes. She, she's heartbroken, but she loves Jesus. And so she goes. And when the Jews were there with her to console her, saw her rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus, the shortest verse in the Bible, it says Jesus wept. You know, Jesus is not emotionally disconnected. He knows everything going on, but it actually says Jesus wept. He looks at their sorrow, he looks at their pain, and he feels for them. And I want you to know Jesus knows how you feel, and he feels for you. But then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Like, what kind of an impact do you think that had on Mary? What kind of an impact do you think that that had on Martha? How do you think that transformed their perspective on their circumstances and what was happening? And I would just say this, that fueled Mary's extravagant worship of Jesus. It says this in verse 3, this is where Jesus, this is where Martha expresses this. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That's a picture of some jars from around the time of Jesus, first and second century in Rome. It's kind of what these jars might have looked like, and Mary had one of those, and it was full of of uh, perfume, this really expensive perfume. In fact, what we find out in this story is that it was a year's salary. How much you guys make in a year? And it, would you have a bottle of perfume that cost you that much? And then the way that Mary worships Jesus is she breaks it and she pours it on his head. Now, John tells us she poured it on his feet, but Matthew and Mark tell us that first she poured it on his head and she anointed him, and then she anointed his feet, 
and then she dries his feet with her hair. Now, there's another similar story like this that happens in Luke, and uh, that's not the same story. There's Simon the Pharisee. There's tons of people named Simon, and so it's not the same person. Now, that person was in the home of a Pharisee. This isn't the home of Pharisees where this happens, and that person was a prostitute, and Mary is not a prostitute, and um, that person, uh, Jesus, the whole point of that story is that that was an expression of her repentance. And so when you think about the various elements, a very similar thing happens. I'm sure Mary is aware of those things, and I think it helps us understand this. Is, uh, this is a, a pound. It's probably more like 12 ounces, and it, 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 it's nard. That's this fragrance that comes from the mountains in India. So picture, somebody's got to go to the mountains in India and get the root and turn that into fragrance and then bring that all the way back to Israel or wherever else it goes. Like, this is rare. This is expensive. And she has pure nard. Some nard is worth, uh, is worth like three months' salary. She's got a year's salary here because it's the best. It is not diluted. And uh, so when she sees this, she's going to genuinely worship Jesus. So she's honoring him, the lowest servant's washed feet. She's doing that. Um, this is an expression of her worship and her recognition of who he is. He is the honored guest. She raised her brother from the dead. She healed, uh, Jesus, or Jesus healed um, Simon the leper because if you have leprosy, you can't hang out with people. So Jesus probably healed him. There's all these people that God has done amazing things for. And she's just saying, Jesus, I think she knows what's about to happen. And she is anointing him for burial, and she's taken a year's salary, something incredibly valuable, and she breaks it, and she pours it out on Jesus. There is no sacrifice. There is no expression of love that is too great. There is no element of worship for Jesus that is too great. I, I thought about this in my kids' lives, and, and this can be hard for us sometimes. We taught our kids to give. And we just said, if you're a Christian, you give. Everything you have comes from God. So when they were little kids and somebody gave them birthday money, I'm like, put this much in your savings account. You can just spend this much on whatever you want. And then this is how much you're going to give. And that started when they were very small. And I didn't just make them do it. I did make them do it. But I didn't just make them do it. I explained to them how to think about worship and about giving and what our finances, how that, how that expresses what we know about God. And then I, one of my kids who needed money, um, I, I would always check in on them. How you doing on your giving? What are you doing with this? How you doing with that? One of my kids is like, yeah, I've just decided I should give 25%. <laughs> and I remember being, me and Michelle are talking about that. I'm like, this, this kid needs money and it doesn't make that much. And he shouldn't give 25%. Like we were feeling like you're overdoing it. And, and I was tempted to tell him to dial it back. And then I thought to myself, but is that a true reflection of how I should view this? In reality, does not everything we have come from God? I thought about all the stuff I'd been telling him. And then I didn't do the sinful thing that I could have done, which would have been to tell him to dial it back. Okay, I just identified it was one of my two kids because I used a gender thing. But anyway, I didn't mean to do that. That's true. I have four sons. Maybe that was a story about one of my son-in-laws. You never know. 
But you know what? She gets it and she pours out her heart in worship. And I guess in a sense, do, do you, as we worship, do we love Jesus so much? Are we so whole, wholehearted in our worship that anything we can do and anything we can give and any way that we can serve, we're thankful to do? Do we ever get involved in ministry and that kind of thing? And if we don't get thanked enough, we're mad and we leave? Or are we like John the Baptist, who um, when, when people come to him and they say, hey, all our crowds are leaving and they're following Jesus. And John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. And John the Baptist wasn't disappointed about that. He was happy about it. Like, what is our heart toward worship and the love of Jesus? You know, um, this is not about giving, but somebody said, man, 20 bucks seems so small at, the, at Disneyland, but it seems so much when you're dropping it in the plate. Um, this isn't about giving. This is actually about our whole life. But Mary expressed worship to God. And uh, when she does this, I want to just consider some satanic disruption some satanic disruption. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him. Okay, so John's like laying out how to understand what's about to happen. This guy that's about to betray him says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put in it. He's like, hey, I could have just got a lot of money. I betrayed Jesus. He gets killed. The disciples are scattered. And who's got the money bag? And he's a little ticked that he's not going to be able to keep the money. And did you know John's the only one who tells us that it was Judas? And he's the only one who says these things about Judas? This is satanic intervention. This is Satan who hates the worship of Jesus. He hates seeing a person that's dedicated to worshiping Jesus. It bothers him. It makes him angry. And this satanic influence in Judas's life through greed causes Judas to be Satan's mouthpiece in this gathering. And Satan, through Judas, attacks Mary for faithfulness, for loving Jesus, and for worshiping Jesus. And by the way, this is a dinner with all the people who love Jesus and who are closest to him. And the way Satan works, Satan always works. You know, um, I want to just read uh, a couple other uh, expressions of this, the one from Matthew and the one from Mark. It says, and when the disciples saw it in Matthew, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold a large sum and given to the poor. So it's the disciples. Now, do you know what that means? That means this is Judas. And instead of the disciples looking and going, oh my goodness, look how much she loves Jesus. Look how much she's honoring him. Look at that expression of worship. I wish I could be like that. Judas reframes it for them. And he goes, hey, <laughs> She wasted a lot of money, and that could have been given to the poor. And now the disciples, instead of looking at something and seeing it and being inspired for it, despise it. And a person that they should have appreciated, 
They were coming down on, discouraging. They were criticizing. They were attacking. And um, that's the disciples influenced by Satan through Judas. And then it says in Mark, he tells the same story and he says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. I think about that. A person humbly, graciously worships God and gets scolded. Man, we better be careful that we don't ever be people who allow Satan to speak to us and reframe what's actually happening around us. Ever happened to you? You ever like looked at something and then later found out, oh man, what I was despising actually I should have been appreciating. That, ever, that kind of thing ever happen in your life? Um, do you ever get sucked into that? Have you ever been a person who like Judas because of jealousy, because of greed, because of anger, became a mouthpiece for Satan? So we got to make sure that like this happened to, to, it happened to him and it happened to the disciples. By the way, Judas is this satanic plant that Jesus allowed to be in his disciples. By the way, the church and every group of Christians are full of satanic plants. And they look good on the outside. G Judas was one of the disciples. Like, I often wonder, did the disciples ever, ever say to themselves, hey, what's with Judas, man? That guy's got, you know, there's something wrong with him. You know, I don't think they ever did. Uh, I think that they just, like, Peter had problems too, right? And, and John, like the sons of thunder, they, they, they see a group of Gentiles are just like, hey, God, Samaritans, God, can we call down fire on these people and burn them up? And Jesus is just going, you know, like when you looked at the group of the disciples, they all had problems. And sometimes satanic plants look just like Christians who are struggling. But at a certain point, God brings those things to light. And we actually need to be aware of that. And here it certainly comes to light. Judas, man, he's this thief. He's got bad motives. He's critical. And he influences people to treat Mary with contempt instead of respecting and learning from her example, which is what they should have been doing. But now let's look at Jesus. How does Jesus respond? With powerful, purposeful protection. Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. You know, I'm going to tell you something that stands out here. We should care about the poor. Like Jesus is wandering around. Jesus is saying that if you follow me, like foxes have holes and all that stuff, but I got nowhere to lay my, Jesus has nothing, but they're gathering money to give to the poor. Like that is a valuable thing that we should do. And by the way, I just want to say I'm so thankful for Foothills Church. And you guys are such a blessing because for me, um, I often get to be the hand of what you are doing. This church gives generously to the Good Samaritan Fund. Uh, that's for people outside to the church and to the Love Fund. That's for people in the church. And I get to be the one who sees people who have nowhere to sleep, who have no food, who have some serious rent issue, who have faced some kind of crisis. And I get to be the person often who takes your money 
that you gave and puts it in the hands of people who need help. Like this church cares about the poor, and that is an important thing to do, but we have a world that's so committed to the poor that they've forgotten about Jesus. And Jesus just says, no, you have the poor with you always, but I'm not always here. And he says, she, it says here, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? It says this in Mark. What she's done is beautiful. He doesn't look at her extravagant worship and say, oh, it's too much. Dial it back. He says, this was appropriate. This was beautiful. It says this, and this is why I think she understood what was going on. You know, everybody understood about the death of Jesus except his disciples. And it's except his disciples because God supernaturally hid it for them. But after Jesus dies, what do the Pharisees do? They go to the Romans and they say, we got to put a, a guard at the gate because Jesus said he was going to die and, and raise three days later. His disciples are going to steal his body. So they're trying to stop a deception and they end up proving what happened. So they heard the message loud and clear. Do you think Mary sitting at Jesus' feet paying attention that she didn't hear it loud and clear? No, I think she did. And in these other passages, it says in Matthew 26, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. That seems to have intention. She did it to prepare me for burial. She knows he's about to die. And in Mark Chapter 4, verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And so she's not missing it. As we think about this story and Mary and her extravagant worship, so many good things in this. But at Easter, we got to make sure that we don't miss what's really going on in ministry, in our life. We are about eternal life. We are about the glory of God. We are not about our personal comfort. We're not about our agenda. We're about Jesus and what he's doing and communicating that to people. And there's no better time than at Easter. Now, I just think about this whole thing. And I think about the way God used all of these failures, all these ways that people missed what was going on to make their ministry powerful. I'll, I'll bet the disciples were careful not to judge somebody like Mary when they thought back to that day, and they thought back to the things that Jesus said. I think it transformed them. I think it's why when we read the New Testament, uh, we see the disciples so focused. It's because they got off track, and they learned from it, and they didn't make that same mistake. And I think about the humility that, that that had to bring into their life and their self-confidence in being about the work of God. I think about them facing persecution. I think about things seeming like they're going wrong. And I think about those disciples look back at this week and they just said, God always has his hand on everything. God is always in control. God is everything. Everything is always going according to God's plan. And I was so discouraged and I got so off track. And in and, and, and those moments, I seemed so overwhelmed. And then look at the amazing things that God did through that. And the next time they're like, oh, it's terrible. It looks bad. You know, I don't know. Maybe they were being beaten for sharing the gospel, thrown in prison, and they were about to be executed. And, and man, with this as the backdrop, what do you think they did? They're singing praises. They're like singing, and all the prisoners are like, you're getting killed tomorrow. What are you singing for? And it's like it transformed their ministry. And then what happens? You got a group of people praying for them. 
And all of a sudden, an angel goes and gets him out of prison, drops him off at the door, and the people praying go to the door, and they're like, the, the servant goes back to tell everybody, hey, uh, Peter got released. And they're like, um, it must be his angel or something like that. They're, like, they're praying, but they're not even ready to receive the answer to prayer. And, and he's got to beat on the door, hey, don't leave me out here. These challenges and these difficulties, and by the way, the challenges and difficulties that you go through in your life, when you see them right, when you read God's word, when you're functioning in the body of Christ, every difficulty you go through, every difficulty that you think through in the right way, every difficulty that you put through the grid of eternity and the gospel message makes every future challenge easier to go through. And it allows you to help other people who are struggling. So often we're a bad testimony and we're not very helpful to people. And it's because we haven't actually learned the things that God wants us to learn. This is a powerful story, powerful thing for us to learn. And we're going to take a moment right now. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus came to die to save mankind, to offer eternal life. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. And we're going to do it again on Friday. Now, my last church, or two churches ago, not my last church, but two churches ago, we celebrated the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And I actually like that. Um, in my last church, in this church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month. And there's a benefit of doing it every week. When you're getting right before the Lord and you're thinking about who Jesus did, that's a good thing to dwell on every week. But sometimes when you do things every week, it loses its power. It becomes rote. So there's a benefit in doing it less often if we can help it stay special. But I want to just read this to you and, think of, and explain the Lord's Supper. What we're going to do in a moment, um, I, when I sit down, you can just get up when you're ready and you can come up to the table, um, take the bread, take the cup, um, eat it, drink it when you're ready. You take it back to your seat, just take it when you're ready. But I want to talk about the significance of this. This reminds us of what happened on Good Friday, and it reminds us of what happened on Easter, and that is that Jesus came and he died as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We don't work our way into heaven. Jesus did that for us. We go to heaven because we have faith, because we believe in God, because we trust the sacrifice that Jesus made. Let me read this verse. It says this in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, I just want to say something about the death of Christ. It's so freeing because we don't have to try to work to be good enough. It is so powerful because Jesus, the God of the universe, accomplished this for us. But um, it is the core of repentance. It's why we don't keep living in sin. It says here that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You look at the disciples' lives. They struggled, but they were living toward righteousness. Look at Judas's life. Um, he struggled, but he actually was dominated by sin. And so the, the person of Christ and a relationship with Christ changes us, transforms us. We don't just keep living in sin. We repent every time we sin. 
We come back to God. We ask forgiveness. We live righteously through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we, we rely on Jesus' work, and we remember he's coming back. And that impacts the way we approach our days. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for your word. God, thank you for loving us, for taking on humanity to be our merciful high priest and saving us. This season, Lord, we ask that you would help us to boldly and wisely reach out to people who need to know the gospel. Lord, I pray that in churches all over, people would hear the good news about you, that they would get saved. And Lord, as we think about this time right here, instead of thinking about everybody else, we want to think about us. Lord, I think about the ways that we can fall short, that we can be distracted, that we can get pulled into Satan's plan for us. And God, I just thank you that there is mercy, that there is forgiveness. And Lord, through the Holy Spirit, there's actually the power to live a spiritually faithful life. God, I pray that we would celebrate that, be thankful for it as we take the Lord's Supper in your name. Amen.